Welcome back to the Martial Arts Mania Podcast. I'm AJ. And I'm Gavin. Oh, that's very professional of you. Thank you. How are you today, good sir? I'm, I'm bloody great, thank you. And you? Is that, is that <laughs> I thought you were just going to respond. I didn't realize, oh, oh, it's very formal. I have to ask you, and you? I, I am doing quite well. Excellent. Although my computer's making noises that you're probably picking up. No. Oh, excellent. That's yeah. great. Not that I know of. Of course, watch, we're going to record this entire episode, and then when I go to play it back, it's going to be like, like 1998 signing on to AOL. <laughs> That's dial-up internet. That was a really bad impersonation, but you know, I can only do so many voices and... 1990s internet is not one of them. Anywho, today is Saturday. It's your chaotic day. So thanks again for making the time to record with us. We've got some exciting news to start off this episode. We're talking about a pretty cool movie today. Uh, we'll definitely dive into that. But uh, anywho, what's new with you? I, I, I'm doing quite well. We've got some performances tonight. The first uh, performances of the year for our dancers. So that's going to be great for them to to do a little showcase for their families uh, in the studio. So uh, hence so-called chaotic day. But all I do is sit back and make my job look easy. Nice. Nice. So is this something that people in the area can attend? Is there still tickets available? Are there still uh, tickets available? Excuse me. The, it's it's an in-studio showing of solo of solo work okay. that they crafted on their own. So, uh, yeah, there are tickets available. No, it's uh, it's fully booked. All 30 seats have been taken. <laughs> okay. But for reference, uh, a lot of times there are shows that are open to the public. So we'll definitely yes. keep everyone informed when those are coming up. Uh, let's see here. Uh, also, uh, I saw actually uh, Mr. Aaron Vargas, our super fan, sent me uh, a cool little link for, uh, oh, darn it. I can't remember what festival is going on right now, but it's like, it's one of the Asian Film Festival, if I'm not mistaken. And today is like the Martial Arts Appreciation Day. Ooh. And they have Andy Chang talking as an Andy Chang, uh, former member of the Jackie Chan stunt team. So that should be a really cool event. Uh, so definitely check that out if you're in the L.A. area today and not working and uh, don't have anything else to do. Obviously, Gavin's working. I'm a little too far away, too short notice for me to get down there. But uh yeah, otherwise, uh, things are good here. Same old, same old. Uh, getting back into hot yoga, which has been amazing. It really helps with my, you know, recovery and uh, injuries and so forth. So I'm digging that. Uh, love the feeling I get from that. So that's been fun to get back into. I haven't been able to do it since the pandemic because, uh, oh, that's right. Yeah, obviously, everything shut down and then we left LA and where we were up in Murphy's, California. Doesn't doesn't exactly have hot yoga, so uh, they don't they don't do uh, hot yoga in the in the back of the Murphy's Diner. No, they do, they do not. Nor do they do it in the snow, which they seem to have right now. I'm not sure about Murphy's, but a little bit up the hill, up in Arnold, California, they're definitely uh, getting snow right now. So uh, yeah, uh, anywho, uh, any exciting martial arts movie news to talk about, or just martial arts news in general. Well, you know what's exciting for me is when we get feedback from listeners. Yes. Uh, positive, negative, fact-checked. <laughs> Never seen any negative uh, feedback, though. Never. And why is my uh, office line ringing in the background? Maybe it's feedback live. Wow. But someone is like, I need to call in and complain. Yes. <laughs> With that said, we have great uh, some great feedback from Daniel on Twitter. Okay. Uh, at... Six K dollar brother, 
Nice uh, name. I like it. Yes. Actually, yeah. Uh, so he was basically saying he was listening to our uh, episode of a janitor. Thank you very much. And he wanted to let us know that in Japan, a janitor was released before baby assassins. So the baby assassins that we saw in a janitor were just like maybe the first time the characters were on screen. Oh. And then uh, that film Baby Assassins was the result. And then he was letting us know that Saori Izawa posted on Instagram that they had just wrapped up shooting Baby Assassins 2. Which does not surprise me in the least bit. Because even when they, you know, spoiler alert, kill them off, I was like, all right, it's going to be one or two things. They're not dead, which they could write off like maybe the one that got shot didn't actually, you know, take a death blow or maybe she just fell over or something. And maybe the one who got like her quote unquote neck broken didn't really die or they just don't give a crap. And it's like one of those kind of movie universes where characters can coexist and die yet still be alive. I mean, for years it was rumored, remember that Tarantino was going to do the Vega Brothers movie uh, about uh, Vincent Vega and uh, oh, whatever Michael Madsen's uh, character mm-hmm. was in Reservoir Dogs. And both of those, spoiler alert, once again, both those characters died in their respected movies and they were going to make a film years after where they would have been older. So, I mean, yeah, and well, I'm excited for it because uh, I quite enjoyed Baby Assassins. And I had to step away to turn down the phone. I don't know if you mentioned uh, Leon uh, from La Femme Nikita. Doesn't he, at, at one point, doesn't he, isn't it alluded that he is passes that away? Is that technically Leon, though? I thought it was. I, I don't remember it actually being Leon. I may have watched uh, La Femme Nikita in French with Japanese subtitles, and they may have just made him Leon. That is possible, because if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> I don't think he possible. is. But uh, definitely a great one to watch if you have not seen La Femme Nikita. Uh, also, the uh, the American version with uh, uh, Bridget Fonda, A Point of No Return, is that what it was called? Or Yes. Yeah, that was that was a good one, too, but definitely. Oh, I the, love that yeah, one. La Femme I Nikita. The, this- Go ahead. No, I, I I loved I loved it. Yeah. I actually bought the ma- there there was an Inside Karate or Inside Kung Fu magazine that featured that film and Jackie Chan on a uh, uh, Jackie Chan film, and I I like remember buying that in the bookstore and just being really excited. And my friends, my American friends, wondering why I was so excited about Jackie Chan being on the cover of a magazine. And then this they was before all stopped being your in the Bronx. Then I stop being their friend. Nice, nice. Reverse it before they can. That's uh, yeah. strike first, strike hard, no mercy. Uh, also, uh, speaking of uh, listener interaction, Mr. Uh, Justin Weir, right? I, I believe you had interacted yes. with him before on Instagram. Uh, and sorry if I pronounced your last name incorrectly. He gave us a great- Actually, you didn't. Okay, perfect. Yes. He, he let me know that we correct we did Woo. it correctly the last so, time. So uh, he gave us his personal top five comfort uh, films on our Instagram page. Once again, our new Instagram page, Martial Arts Mania Podcast, at Martial Arts Mania Podcast. Please follow us on Instagram. And speaking of which, as of uh-huh. this morning, before recording, we have hit 100 followers. And there you go. I must say, and this is thanks to Gavin, uh, a, a, la- a late push there, but these are all organic and real followers, no bots. So I'm happy to say, uh, you know, my goal is by the end of the year, let's get to 1,000, baby. I think we can do it. Let's do it. Especially because, once again, friendly reminder, we're going to be at LA Comic Con in a few weeks. Uh, that's really exciting. We're going to be selling some awesome gear from the Union Designs. We've been working with the Union Designs, uh, picking out t shirts. 
we're actually doing some new designs. Uh, we're going to have a booth there. It's going to be awesome. Uh, definitely check us out if you're going to be there. But anywho, uh, Justin Weir gave us his top five comfort films. Uh, I won't go into too much detail, but these were all ones that I said back I would could definitely make one of my future lists. He has the Mark Dacascos film Drive, classic. Oh, excellent. Hitman, uh, a.k.a. The Contract Killer with Jet Li, another great one, mm-hmm. which we almost did an episode on. Uh, we almost did. Yeah, we almost did a few months ago. In fact, I'm like, wait, did we? But no, we were like this close. And I forget why we didn't. So maybe we still will. Uh, the Hot, the Cool, and the Vicious. Classic Kung Fu cinema that we've seen at the New Beverly. Uh, Tiger Cage 2, which I coincidentally enough just Ooh. watched this week because I got my uh, brand new triple pack of the Tiger Cage films. Uh, and then Undisputed 2. Very great, great yeah. selection. Very, those are great kung fu comfort films. Anybody can sit down and watch those and enjoy. So, thank you for uh, sharing your input, Justin, in Australia, right? He's in Australia. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Just making sure. And, and, and if he thought that one, if he thought he was going to get through one episode without the Australian caricature voice, he was greatly mistaken. Hey, all I said was Australia. You know, and you, you got to say it <laughs> like the native would. Just like you know, like. In China, they don't call China China. It's Zhongguo, right? So Zhongguo. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, I don't know how you say Japan in Japanese. Is it Nippon or no? That's not right. Yeah, Nihon. Nihon. Oh, I was close, man. And I don't even very close. Dang, I'm a genius, dog. Uh, so I ha- I, there's other news. Okay, let's hear it. I, I, uh, so uh, we we had a guest on the show, Sean Cannon, who yes. released the book Way of the Cobra. Yes, he has a sequel. And as I said on Twitter, we like sequels. Uh, it's uh, called Welcome to the Kumite. Oh. And it has a book launch event uh, on December 10th, which I intend to go to and might be meeting uh, Aaron Vargas there as well. Nice. I unfortunately. So there are going to be three celebrities there. Yeah. What's up? What's up? You'll definitely have to represent us. Uh, unfortunately, that's my uh, family's annual Christmas party that weekend, which we haven't had since pre-COVID. So it's, you know, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a family tradition that goes back like 40 something years. So, uh, pretty regular thing. So I'll be in the Sacramento area, but, uh, yeah, you will have to represent. Awesome. Uh, let's see here. Uh, other martial arts movie news, the trailer for John Wick four dropped. Yes. Looks very entertaining. Here's the deal. Uh, I, I wasn't necessarily blown away by the trailer itself. I liked seeing everybody in it. I liked seeing kind of the setup of it. I am feeling I'm, I'm starting to get a little tired of the storyline. Like I want them to mix things up a little bit more. However, the cast that's in there, the action that you've seen, it's incredible. I know I'm going to be blown away by this film. I'm interested to see where they take it from here, though. It's kind of like I feel like this, this is probably going to be the... If they do another one after this of just straight John Wick, like they've talked about building on the John Wick universe, which I think is great. But if they're going to do another straight John Wick one, it'll be interesting to see how they end this film, because I I feel like they need to change things up a bit. I'm excited for this one. I know it's a continuation of number three in the storyline. And obviously it's interesting characters that were enemies in the previous one seem to be his friend again. So it's like maybe they were actually looking out for him. But Either which way, you've got people like Haruyuki Sonata, you've got Donnie mm-hmm. Yen in there, and once again, it's not really clear whether Donnie Yen is playing a Chinese character or a Japanese character or, you know, American, Chinese, American, Japanese, because he has a samurai sword and stuff, but who knows? Uh, you've got Marco Zaror in there, mm-hmm. uh, an incredible performer. Uh, you've got Scott Atkins, and the yes. list goes on. So the film's going to be amazing. Uh 
I should take back what I said earlier about not really being blown away by the trailer. I quite enjoyed it. I guess I, I would have loved to have seen more of the other performers in it, the other martial artists, but that's good. You know, they're making us wait. So it's just me being selfish and wanting to see, you know, more Donnie Yen kicking or Scott Atkins and what he's going to be doing or Marco Zoror and his incredible acrobatic abilities. So my my two thoughts on this is I love seeing a trailer. My three thoughts, because I'm now adding a third thought. I love seeing a trailer on for the US for the US audience that has Donnie Yen in it for so long. That's number one. Number two, if there is a John Wick part five, I heard it is coming to the valley where they're going to cross over with uh, Cobra Kai. Or that's actually not true. That's just a joke, but you're not laughing. So I'm going to go to my other joke. No, man, I was John- I was literally thinking about it in my head when you said it. <laughs> like I, I zoned out. I wasn't I wasn't like that was a lame joke, Gavin. I literally went off into another plane and was thinking about like, oh, sweet. John was going to fight work? Martin Cove, right? He's going to fight Crease. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's going to be a badass. But I was honestly contemplating uh, what that would be. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. And then my other my other thought was uh, John Wick 4, 5 is actually going to be the crossover of Constantine 2, where we actually find out how he got to hell. <laughs> Okay, that one's okay. a little more lame, but yeah. still made me laugh. Uh, yeah, so otherwise, also great new releases coming out from Eureka. Uh, there's, I just saw this morning on Prime, There's a, and I haven't even seen any announcements from it, there's another Arrow video release of more Sunny Chiba movies. I already pre-bought it. I de- it was for The Executioners 1 and 2, oh, awesome. which I have both of those on DVD, but hey, Blu-ray remastered, can't beat it. I love the first Executioner. I don't even like the second one, to be honest with you. It has a, a good finale, but way too little, too late. However, mm-hmm. I'm still going to buy the box set just because. But uh, also, you know, a bunch of good ones coming out. Uh, U.S. releases of some of the Jackie ones in December. Uh, I'm not sure who's releasing those because they've already been released by Eureka 88. So remember, most of the films from Eureka 88 don't get released here. They're slowly starting to, some of them, but uh, it's hard to keep track. But yeah, and then also, I think we already talked about the announcement of the In the Line of Duty box set, uh, which I'll Mm -hmm. definitely be buying. So, So it's just... We're living in a good time for Kung Fu movies. Not for new ones necessarily coming out. Obviously, there isn't a ton of them. But for the classics coming out, I spent all week catching up on a bunch of these new ones I just bought. And I've just been in Kung Fu uh, heaven. I, I watched Marshall Club this morning. My first time watching it in years. Oh, oh wow. So good. I, I, so I love good. going back to those films. I have a bunch of them on uh, VCD. My man. <laughs> yeah, for those of oh, you that man. don't know, VCDs. That's, for example, my very first copy of Ong Bak was on VCD. And I nearly... Oh, freaked wow. out when I started watching it because I heard Thai and I think it was Cantonese at the same time <laughs> yes, because yes. the audio tracks would play at the same time and on a VCD you had to hit I finally figured out you had to hit the audio button on your DVD remote to turn one of them off but VCDs oh, really? were like VHS quality on a CD it was always two CDs for the one movie so if for those so I would have an old DVD player with uh, it has three cores in the back one for visual and one for the left audio one for the right audio and all I would do is unplug the right audio to get the audio oh, I wanted to hear oh that's smart and by yeah so by the way when you choose one of the audio tracks you're not getting very good audio quality uh, <laughs> no it's it just once comes from one side of your television yeah I bought all mine in Chinatown uh, back in the early 2000s and we probably bought it from the same store no it was a legitimate store yours was LA Chinatown. Mine was San Francisco Chinatown, buddy. Oh, okay. Yeah, because remember, well, I'm from Northern California. Yours might be a little more legitimate then. No, definitely not any more legitimate. <laughs> I'm just saying different Chinatowns. Uh, uh, 
Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I, have, I forgot where we even were. We've gone off on this tangent. We're talking about VCDs, my man. VCDs, VCDs buddy. Yeah. So, anyways, Marshall Club, fantastic. And just even the interviews. Some of the interviews are brand new. Some of them are archived. But it's always good to catch up and learn more about the nuances of these films and the performers. For example, on Marshall Club, they have an interview with Johnny Wong, uh, the classic Shaw Brothers uh, villain and actor. And later, some Golden Harvest, too. He plays the northerner in Marshall Club. And I'm pretty sure this is a brand new interview. And right out the gate, they ask him, what's your martial arts background, which I'd love to hear. And he's like, before he even started working with Chang Tzu, uh, the famous Shaw Brothers director, he was a third don in karate. That was his oh. background. I've always thought yeah, he was such a powerful performer. And even in the 80s, he was one of the Shaw guys that was able to switch over to contemporary action. And I was always curious as to why, if he had a traditional Kung Fu background. But apparently his background was karate, which makes more sense. He didn't say what style, maybe later in the interview. I only watched like a minute of it. But uh that's interesting to note because he was so good at performing Kung Fu. So I'm oh, hoping he talks more in the interview later about learning Kung Fu, probably under the tutelage of La Garlong. Uh, but yeah, just very interesting stuff all around. Marshall Club, fantastic film. Check it out. Obviously, it was the movie that inspired the stunt group Marshall Club uh, to pick that name because it is such a darn good film. Uh, anywho, let's get the ball rolling. Do you have movie quotes for me today, my man? Indeed, I do. Woo! The first one. Is the easy one. Uh. So it's just it's just gonna be a short one if you need if you need more information, I can provide it to you. Are you ready? I'm ready, baby. Clearly, yes. Okay, here we go. My turn to teach. What? That's not easy. That's what the <laughs> yeah. I sometimes that's I guess we flip the I think it's easy. Okay. Uh, right. give me some context. This context is how did you like the lesson? My turn to teach. That's so the so this main character has just been beaten up by this guy who has a beautiful mullet, very beautiful mullet, great silk clothes, like it just it, it the, the way he moves on camera looks great. It's the first time you're actually seeing this American martial arts star get really whooped on camera and then he stands up and says, my turn to teach. I have no idea. And, uh, he did, uh, uh, so at the end of the lesson, his henchman boss comes in. That would have been a pure. Ah, dang it. He's like, Carlos. Dang it. I'm messing this up really bad. Because I didn't think you'd need more. Billy Drago's the boss of the guy who gets the lesson. Okay, so what is this, like Delta Force 2 or... Yes, Delta Force 2. Okay, man, that was not easy. That was not <laughs> well, I easy. Was gonna... We would have made such a beautiful relationship. Like, I got that it was a Billy Drago quote, so I guess I should have instinctively well, no, that gone was... to Delta Force 2. It was a good Billy Drago well, that was, impression. That was Chuck... That, well, that was actually Chuck Norris. Like, I think he was being directed by Billy Drago in the scene. <laughs> Telling Carlos, my turn to teach. And then he like beats him up. And then he, Carlos does, knows no longer after the, the lesson. And then, Oh, uh, is it the ending fight? Yes. Yes. Okay, got it. With, I forget the stuntman's name. He's a real life student of Chuck Norris. Yeah. Uh, coincidentally enough, named Carlos in the film. Yes. And that's Chuck yes. Norris's real name. Yeah. The first person who can hurt uh, Chuck Norris is named Carlos. Of and course. Then he hurts back, and then we would have made such a beautiful friendship. Not in a million years, pal. Okay, well, uh, all right. Terrible choice, it, it, but anyways, next Terrible one. choice. <laughs> this one's going to be so easy. Okay. 
All right. I'm going to laugh if I know it right out the gate. Yeah, you're probably just like the last time. Yeah. Destruction is easy. Building is hard and expensive. I'll give you the rest of the quote. Think about it. You have 24 hours. Ancient saying. A sword is tested by fire. A warrior is tested by his actions. Mm, Sword of Bushido? No. Okay. Okay. So here's here's the hint. The first film, the first quote right. is from a Chuck Norris film. Right. right? And I'm, I'm okay. Lady doing... Dragon Two. No, no, no. Oh, damn it. <laughs> so it's an eye for an eye. The, first, the film we're talking about today, I just blew it. It's an eye for an eye. Chuck Norris stars in as does Mako. I was looking for a Mako quote. Oh. I found this quote instead from a film that features Mako. Balance of this Power. Is the... Yes. All right. Very good. There's only James so Lou. many Mako martial arts, straight martial arts <laughs> films. So, And I knew it wasn't Sidekick. So Balance of Power with Billy Blanks. Uh I'll, I'll do better next week. I'll pull a larger, easier quote. Excellent. I appreciate that. So, segueing into the movie we're talking about today. <laughs> the 1981 Steve Carver directed Chuck Norris action thriller, An Eye for an Eye. Starring, obviously, Mr. Chuck Norris. Uh, we've got some other great performers in there. Uh, you've got uh, Rosalind Chow, Maggie Cooper, the great Professor Turo Tanaka, uh, in there playing uh, lead henchman. You have smaller roles from uh, such character actors as Stuart Pankin. It's funny seeing him. You're like, oh, I know that guy. It just once again popped up in a bunch of movies. But obviously, you also have the wonderful, great Christopher Lee. He does. He actually does a really nice villain role uh, in this. Uh, it does. It didn't. He didn't make our list. I, I don't think there's enough meat on the bone right. to make our our top villain list. But what he does, what I really like about it, is there is a little bit of sociopathic element to him. Oh yeah, where he just really he he's one of those villains that is layered, and he even enjoys uh, Chuck Norris's victory over the professor. It's it's. He's it, definitely sick. It gives me He's hints great. of the man with the golden gun. And that's why I yes, love it. And here's absolutely. the funny thing. Spoiler alert, he is the mastermind the whole time. At the beginning, you don't really know that. But here's the funny part. The second he comes on the screen, I'm like, oh, he's the villain. He's yeah, got to be. It's Christopher course. Lee. And then you, his first few scenes where you think he's like an ally. I was like, no, this, he's obviously the bad guy. There wasn't any like hints there. Was there was nobody else. There, and there wasn't any reason to think that aside from him being Christopher Lee. I'm like, you're not going to cast Christopher Lee in this kind of random side, uh, you know, ally role. I'm like, he's going to be the villain without a doubt. Well, what's, what's great is it's almost, uh, it's almost like a Columbo episode unveiling where he's trying to help the police or whatever you need. And he's, he's the friend of, of everyone who's investigating. Right. But of course, the, the best part is, so the other actor I was going to mention, uh, one of the key players in this film, who you're made to think is supposedly a villain, is the police captain, played yes. by the one and only Richard Roundtree, baby, Shaft himself. You know, I, what I love about this film is once once it's clear that he's a good guy and they're about to raid Christopher Lee's house, uh, when, when there's a scene where he's walking up alone and checking the back of a van and he finds explosives or whatever else is in there, there's a baseline for him as he's walking. I'm like, oh, the, the filmmakers are giving us a, a little wink or the, the, the composer is by just having like a baseline. Play. Like he, 
it just pops out. It's just for him. Hell yeah. And I think I mentioned this on a previous episode. I had a weird abnormal obsession uh, with Shaft in the late 90s because when they re-released, uh, or excuse me, re-released, when they released the new Shaft with Samuel Jackson, the John yes. Singleton directed one, not the comedy one yeah. they did a couple years back. That one, which I want to go back and rewatch. Christian Bale plays the bad guy. It's probably been like 20 years since I've seen it. Uh, really mm-hmm. good film. But anywho, they did it like a marathon of the uh, original trilogy on TBS and I yes. record them and watch them. Like Shaft Goes to Africa, Shaft's Big Score, Shaft. Uh, and at the time, I also had a strange fascination with black exploitation because pretty much because of Jim Kelly, right? And the crossover mm-hmm. between martial arts cinema and black exploitation. And Richard Roundtree is just such a cool dude, man. He's just, we need to see more of Richard Roundtree, man. Uh, and obviously, he's popped up in martial arts cinema throughout the years. You know, he yes. did obviously some of the Jim Kelly movies, uh, Blood Fist 3, Forced to Fight. Uh, remember, he plays the uh, like prison lawyer pretty much right he's like is an expert on the law and uh there's uh, there's one film i just can't i don't remember of his where he's sort of like he is a cop but there's martial i rented it for the martial arts aspect but he's in it and he's a significant role he's almost a bigger role than the martial arts that's in it if i remember correctly and it as i was watching this i was trying to remember the film but it just didn't come to me because he has so many movies oh i mean yeah uh, that's what people forget and uh, I feel like maybe he doesn't get his due, you know, respect because uh, I guess he's he's a product of his era, right? Like, I mean, even similar to say like Pam Greer, who is just so phenomenal, and you look at her early body of work, and nowadays, yeah, I mean, she's known but not as well known as she should be, or as appreciated as she should be, right? For how groundbreaking uh, some of her roles and her characters were. Uh, you're absolutely correct. And, and I think what's what's uh, what's really missed with Richard Roundtree is so much of it centers around him being an iconic character that that crossed over throughout all audiences in Shaft. And he's I don't know if he's as appreciated for his acting chops as he should be, because he is a fine actor. Oh, yeah. And I think the film you were thinking of, uh, if I had to guess, would be one down, two to go. Uh, I think you're right. Yeah, uh, it's either going to be that one or three the hard way, but I'm pretty sure it's one down, two to go because I'm three the hard way. I remember, but I think it's one down. Yeah, because that one had a little less of the martial arts stuff. And I'm not mistaken, Jim Kelly, like gets kidnapped at the beginning or something. I forget. So that's why there isn't as much martial arts. That's directed by Fred Williamson. Yes. Wow, that's a great film. Oh yeah, and thank the, you. I, I've been, I was trying to. I was reliving the scenes in my in my in my in my eyes. Fred Williamson in, is uh, another in my head. Another great one. And when I met him at Dragonfest, oh boy, he called me out. I was like, oh man, I love your films. I've been watching them for years, which is true. But it's like off the top of my head, I wasn't really thinking. He's like, what's your favorite one? And I was like, oh my god. And he caught me off guard. And I was like, okay, well, I, I loved you. And from Dust Till Dawn, right? Like you know, blah blah. blah. And he's uh-huh. like, right, I'm gonna give you a quote from one of my movies. And he picked a random quote. And I was like, oh, I, I don't. And he just like gives me this blank Fred Williamson stare. He's like, son, that was blah, blah, blah. And I was was just totally, I was like, damn it. Next time I talk to him, I need to, you know, rent a bunch of- Well, that's that's like me pulling up beside Billy Blanks and telling him, I loved you in Showdown. No, that's that's different. That's that's a good one. And he probably appreciated that. That's not. Well, and see, for Billy Blanks, because people forget about his film career or maybe he never even knew outside of the genre fans. He probably loved that. I'd say it's more comparable to the time I met Carl Weathers and I told him I loved him in Action Jackson as opposed to <laughs> any of his other like, you know, oh, Apollo Creed great. roles or even Happy Gilmore or Predator. I, you know, I meet him. I'm 21 years old. It's like one of my first times meeting a celebrity. And I'm like, I loved you in Action Jackson. And he was kind of taken okay, well, aback. 
Oh, uh, we're, we're gonna we're gonna take this this episode and continue down this path. When I got to when I got to meet Carl Weathers, I think I told you this. Uh, the one thing I had that I had him sign because he was like having people sign like and everyone's lining up with like DVDs of Predator. I had an Action Jackson uh, uh, pin that was like elect Action Jackson in '88 or whatever, and I had him sign that. I'm just like, so of course, yeah, you and I are on the same wavelength with him. He smiled. He, he seemed to be happy with it. But this is why we have a podcast together. This is why we have a podcast. This is why we so, make a beautiful team. Yeah. Not in a million years, pal. <laughs> so let's get back to the movie. Also from, also from Delta Force. Right. Let, let's get back to the movie. So uh, 1981, the film directed by Steve Carver, who uh, was primarily early, you know, film school guy, what you'd call part of the uh, new Hollywood cinema movement, right? Like these guys. So we have classic Hollywood cinema, right? We're talking early days, silent cinema, all the way up till like pre sixties. Then you have new Hollywood cinema, which was kind of this era of the first filmmakers to go to film school, right? You have Steven Spielberg, mm -hmm. Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, these guys. So Steve Carver's kind of part of that same uh, era. And he began as like a documentary filmmaker, pretty much. One of his documentaries got him into the American Film Institute, where he was doing a bunch of documentary stuff. That's where he got recruited by Roger Corman. For people that don't know, Roger Corman, a very prolific film producer that's still alive, if I'm not mistaken. I think he's about 100 years old. Uh, who's kind of known more for his exploitation films, but he also obviously Don the Dragon Wilson was one of his later era big stars, but he gave a lot of filmmakers and actors some of their first roles. Like if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. maybe Jack Nicholson and Clint Eastwood started off in a couple maybe, but like Martin Scorsese, uh, Boxcar yes. Bertha, you know, was a, uh, 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 Roger Corman production. So anywho, he got recruited by Roger Corman. He did films like uh, The Arena and Big Bad Mama. So The Arena had, uh, once again, Pam Greer in it, who we were talking about before, Big Bad Mama with Angie Dickinson. So, you know, he kind of came through this exp like documentary filmmaking. So technically as a filmmaker, very good. Then he kind of goes through the exploitation film. And th there's a difference. I think people have a tendency to misunderstand exploitation as what it, uh, like that era of the original exploitation films. And nowadays, a lot of times you get kind of homages, which can be done correctly. Like, you know, the Grindhouse uh, films that Quentin Tarantino did, even some other ones. Like I, I liked Hobo with a shotgun, but you also Black get dynamite. Yeah. Black dynamite is, a, but that's more black exploitation than exploitation. But once again, same, yeah. you know, sort of thing. But then you get like these films that just think it's a, uh, uh, a cheap, easy way to make a quote unquote comedy, like making it in that style. It doesn't work. You do have kind of a new era of exploitation, like with all those like Sharknado movies. But the difference is the original exploitation were still really good films, right? It was just kind of a lot of times they had a political message, right? You had filmmakers like Mario Van Peebles and so forth, making yes. real cinema, making a statement. Uh, so and Melvin Van Peebles. Yeah, that's what I meant. Sorry. Did I say Mario? I know. Technically, Mario uh, was Posse. in his dad's movies, though. Also, also the uh, one of the westerns that I loved when I was uh, like in the in the nineties was uh, Posse, I directed love by Mario Posse. Van Peebles, featuring Melvin Van Peebles. So good, such a good movie. As a kid, I was the same way because we were talking about that in the last episode with samurai films, like the older Chambara ones, even and maybe not having that level of patience. That's how I was with westerns when I was younger. But Posse was one of those ones right out the gate. I was like, this is so entertaining. It's got kick-ass action. In fact, if you go into IMDb and you look up Posse, you'll find a review from about the year 2000 by 13-year-old <laughs> AJ where he talks about loving it 
and finally a western with good action i can't remember what uh, my handle was but check it out it should be on there. i will check it out i yes. will check it out uh anywho so steve an carver eye for an eye yeah an eye yes. for an eye steve carver 1981 directs this film uh Steve Carver would famously go on to make what I feel is probably the best Chuck Norris film with Chuck Norris, mm-hmm. which is Lone Wolf McQuaid. So I feel like this was kind of their feeling out period. So a few things to begin with. First of all, very well-made movie. We've already established Steve Carver as a real filmmaker. And that's the thing. Even these straight action pictures of that era, this is pre-video. So everything we talked about this a little bit last episode too, still shot on film, still made from a very good technical standpoint. Another unique Mm -hmm. feature of this film, the San Francisco setting, always good to mix it up, you know, and I love seeing San Francisco on screen as such. I love San Francisco to go visit. I know it's not necessarily the best place to live these days, you know, but, uh, still such a cool city, such a vibrant, live walking city. You know, there's so much, uh, beauty to be captured in it. Uh, especially back in, you know, early eighties, excuse me. Uh, so that's unique. Uh, the fact that it's shot in the same way as almost like the seventies thrillers, right? Like a yes. cop thriller or political thriller, this kind of the thriller subgenre, a little bit different than maybe you instinctively think of thriller. Like, Oh, it's got to have a horror element. No, not necessarily. It, it's got to, it's kind of more like that political or cop thriller that would segue in the future into like uh, techno thrillers and so forth. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, this obviously it's one against many. It's the police corruption, uh, drug dealing, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, the, the setup of the film pretty much is Chuck Norris is a detective. He and his partner are investigating some big time drug dealers. They're set up and his partner gets killed. He quits the force. I mean, because Richard Roundtree, his captain, is like, you're going to take responsibility for this, blah, 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 blah. And pretty much he's like, nope, I quit. And uh, his very good friend, uh, played by Rosalind Chow, family friend, who was married to his partner, she's a reporter that tries investigating it on her own, and then she mm-hmm. gets murdered. So then Chuck Norris has to take things into his own hands. And even though he's retired, he decides to get to the bottom of this. He ends up inadvertently teaming up with who is his like first martial arts instructor and also the father of Rosalind Chow played by the great Mako here playing a uh, Chinese specifically like Cantonese character. Uh, And it's, it's a great partnership. I would have actually loved to have seen a buddy cop film with them. It has that buddy cop film element. Now, technically what we define as the buddy cop film genre didn't really, I I believe, uh, began until 48 hours. I mean, yes, there had been early examples of it, uh, even in some Japanese cinema and so forth, right? I believe one of the first films that is uh, credited as being a buddy cop film is a Toshira Mufune film, and I can't remember the name of it right now. But... uh, Anywho, they have a great kind of back and forth relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's more so like Mako wants to team up with Chuck and Chuck's like, no, nah, I don't need you yet. Mako keeps popping up and they keep saving each other back and forth. Uh, and so Chuck Norris decides to investigate these drug dealers. He teams up with uh, uh, Rosalind Chow's roommate and another reporter in the station, the played by Maggie Cooper. And together they kind of expose who the real bad guy is. Ends up, it was the new station's boss all along, Christopher Lee. And this is the setup for all sorts of cool action in a cool setting in San Francisco. Yes. Uh, what, what, uh, so 
first off, to just track back to uh, the first Buddy Cop movie that you're kind of talking about, I believe the Mifune film actually may have been a Kurosawa film, Stray Dog. Yes. Where yes. he loses. Yeah, he loses his gun. I don't know. I mean, it's kind of funny. It's also like sweltering the film set in sweltering heat so right. and it is Toshi- like, Toshiro Mifune right in it Toshiro yes, Mifune yeah. with uh, the with uh, the older samurai from Seven Samurai uh, um, but it's a Kurosawa film and who is that actor uh, uh, Tagashi Shimura okay but uh, what what is so fun about this film is unlike some other Chuck Norris films or other action films it doesn't place the action star above the film it allows the story to unfold it gives uh ample time to characters including the city of san francisco mm-hmm. you do have screen time for richard roundtree rosalind mako christopher lee the professor i think and the city of san francisco so i mean chuck norris obviously is the star but it isn't it isn't hey we're introducing you to a new style of martial arts and we're going to uh build the film around the martial arts, sort of like uh, Steven Seagal's uh, Above the Law. And it's interesting you talk about introducing new style martial arts. Now, this film, I honestly, the first time I saw it was like a month or two ago when they put it on Tubi because it... I could never find a copy of it growing up. And the reason I always yeah. wanted to was I had heard that Chuck Norris does Kung Fu in this movie. And on the cover, <laughs> that was like the original VHS cover and stuff, which I had seen online. It's him doing yeah. this kind of Wing Chun looking pose. It's like a pop okay. sow and a punch at the same time. And okay. I forget, I'm sure there's a name for that technique specifically in Wing Chun and or Jeet Kune Do. But, uh, and I was always intrigued by that. And it's like, oh yeah, he does Kung Fu and Mako's in it and this and that. And all of my video rental places growing up, nobody had a copy of it. And I just, and then eventually I know they released a DVD, but it was, you know, I wasn't going to pay. It was like, they want something ridiculous for it. And I was like, nope. Uh, so finally got to watch it and I was super excited about that. That being said, no, Chuck Norris doesn't really do Kung Fu. I think it's, that's an implication because the guy who introduced him to the martial arts is Mako, who's playing an older Chinese gentleman uh, who does a few good Kung Fu poses. And that's the interesting, interesting thing about Mako uh, is he was always really good at performing martial arts, even as far back as the Green Hornet when he did that episode with yeah. Bruce Lee, the Mantis episode. So I don't know if what his necessarily his athletic background was, if he was just a natural performer, if it was just from like stage combat experience. But he is very believable as a martial artist and or martial arts instructor. I do like how in this film, though he's not invincible if anything it's like you know he's supposed to be a little bit older and you know he handles himself well but then chuck norris has to save him you know a couple times uh but yeah definitely not chuck norris doing kung fu chuck norris doing chuck norris but chuck norris doing chuck norris in the best kind of way yeah it it, you know it's funny because you you mentioned uh the, the other film he did with Carver, uh, Lone Wolf, Wolf McQuaid, I personally sometimes gravitate gravitate towards a code of uh, code of silence, mm-hmm. right? Code of silence is one of his of his best films, and also The Hitman. Uh, but I and and Delta Force too. But I will say with Carver, you actually have a film that sustains the whole way through, uh, and. Uh, particularly with Lone, Lone Wolf McQuaid, it's just it's just high art with with Chuck Norris. Uh, when when shifting back to like Mako, what I really like about his martial arts scenes is there is this level of 
of believability. When he goes into strike, sometimes maybe he it, it, it lessens the believability. But even throughout, even within the script, what they've what they've woven in is when I was younger, I would have taken him much faster than you took him, yeah. like the Chuck Norris. So there there is that like that buddy cop element that you would get from it, but also like, hey, this is why I'm not beating these guys up and you are, but still believe that my martial art is good. It's it's just I don't know. It, it's a it's 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 a well balanced, intertwined film for me. Yeah. And speaking of the martial arts, the fight scenes are very much Chuck Norris style, but in the best kind of way. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more. Now we get some brilliant moments where I love when they do like the slow motion stuff, and you get to watch Chuck Norris do his kicks. Uh, yes. And occasionally, some of the stuff it's almost like, all right, we're just setting up the camera. You're going to throw like, they look sometimes almost just like martial arts demonstrations, right? Because there isn't dynamic enough of camera work. They don't uh, set up the right angle necessarily. It's literally just like, we're going to capture all the action in this one shot. Obviously that makes it easier, but when they do take the time to, you know, have multiple shots, do the slow motion, capture from the right angles, there's some great stuff in there and you get to see how good of a kicker and performer Chuck Norris was. And it's like we were talking about with Angela Mao a couple episodes ago, mm-hmm. like early on. She was always a phenomenal kicker. It just wasn't maybe necessarily she was getting captured in the right kind of way. And that has to do with the evolution of fight choreography, martial arts, cinema, cinematography, how you capture the action. And obviously the U.S. was a little behind uh, America. I mean, pretty much all the way up until uh, this isn't fair, different styles. Right. But it wasn't until the yeah. Matrix and Hong Kong cinema, the the boom in the mid 90s with Jackie Chan and stuff that it became commonplace for action to be captured in the same sort of way. But here, when we do get Chuck Norris uh being uh, shown in the best kind of way, whether it's the right angle or the good slow motion, you see how great of a kicker he really is, right? Yeah. And you, you, you actually, know, great you actually side believe kicks. in the power. Yes, yeah, the you power. actually believe in that power as well. And I think there are a few standout scenes. I'm, I'm going to yield the, the microphone back to you in a second, but like the, the sequence on the boat, yes, in particular, is a great standout scene but as i'm watching it i'm like oh they cut right there just at the wrong point exactly or they don't right? cut right you're like yes, oh my or gosh they don't cut like when they do the the slow motion spinning his spinning now his spinning wheel kicks or spinning hook kicks they're not really spinning wheel kicks or spinning hook kicks they're the same sort that i was taught in uh when i was doing korean martial arts as a kid as I, once again it said taekwondo the school I think it was more like Tong Sudo, kind of that mixture. But Chuck Norris's kicks were much more the style I was taught, which would be a spinning reverse crescent kick. Or, you uh-huh. know, or, uh, what people, for some reason, mistakenly, when it comes to Chuck Norris, always call it a roundhouse kick. I'm like, no, a roundhouse kick is a roundhouse kick, people. But, but anyways, he where he would throw it like you know, hip open and that, that kick can look very powerful. It's almost more like a capoeira spinning kick. That being mm-hmm. said... Like there's that slow motion shot of him doing it. And I'm like, oh, you should have cut right then to be behind and show it whip across the face. And because yes. they don't, it, it you can clearly see, oh, his legs a little bent and it you know doesn't look as believable. The impact. So these are the kind of things I was mentioning before. And obviously you caught that Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think I think that I think Carver improved by uh, imp- improved in the action sequencing. By uh, Lone, Wolf, Lone McQuaid. Wolf McQuaid, but even then they're like long takes that are lower, and you 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 know he was then working with uh, uh, David Carradine, uh, <laughs> so it's really hard to say like this is the best fight movie for Chuck Norris. I think I think it's always going to be hard to find the best from beginning to end fight film for for Chuck Norris, and there are other actors out there where we can say 
you, we right. can say with certainty. You know, I think Chuck Norris would have benefited from like the Jean-Claude Van Damme edits. Well, Chuck Norris, you know, he's, from from the get go, after, say, Way of the Dragon and obviously Slaughter in San Francisco, a.k.a. Yellowface Tiger, a.k.a. Karate Cop, he didn't want to be a quote unquote straight up martial arts star. He, he, right, right out the gate, even good guys were black or a force of one, which a force of one is very martial arts themed. He, but it, you can't necessarily even call it just a straight martial arts film. He was always trying to break himself free from that. And uh, yeah. that was even kind of some of the, the critical reception of this film was people were actually slightly critical of like, he's trying to do that, but he shouldn't, you know? And that's, you know, I obviously I think he had the potential to be a huge star, which he was. And, but by that I meant, sorry, he had the potential to be more of an actor, which later in his career, he definitely did. That being said, there really isn't a straight Chuck Norris movie where it's just martial arts start to finish. Like you mentioned, yep. Van Damme. Okay. Blood sport, kickboxer, of course, you know, uh, Jackie Chan tons, right. Uh, you know, Jet Li, obviously, uh, most mm-hmm. martial arts stars and American ones, Steven Seagal, even you've got, uh, you know, a crap ton of action of starts to finish and a bunch of his. But like Chuck Norris, I always all of his movies, I just wanted a little bit more. And this one, even I'm like, there's some great sequences. Yeah, there's some hokey stuff like where he uppercuts the guy onto the diving board on the pool. And I'm like, OK, then he climbs up on there with him just to kick him into the water. It is a slow motion shot, though, so it kind of looks cool. Yeah, but yeah, it's. For me, like the closest thing we have for a start to finish uh, Chuck Norris action film is Forced Vengeance. I mean, I always kind of attribute Ooh, that to good Richard Norton being present in right. the film. Uh, however, like if we're looking for a pure Chuck Norris start to finish, we have to actually look at like the episode of Walker, Texas Ranger, where he goes to prison and yes. he's in the cage fighting. And that is that is some of his best stuff. I I. I mean, I also love the Delta Force two fight sequence, the training sequence, as yes. we as we've talked about before, and the the bar fight sequence in Code of Silence is probably one of the most realistic, believable bar fight sequences where it's one versus many. But uh, yeah, th- this film has some great showcases showcasing of his power. Uh, and his and legitimate, his technique. Yeah, his technique. Thank you. That's exactly what I was about uh, to say. And you mentioned the Delta Force two scene, and this one before I forget, I want to mention. Chuck Norris may have one of the best, and forgive me, but uh, I believe it's uh, Koshiwaza or hip throws in uh, uh, judo, yes. uh, Goshi, or like he has yep. maybe one of the best hip throws, judo hip throws in all of martial arts cinema. That has to do with his background. Obviously, as we all know, he later became a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, but he does have a mm-hmm. brown belt in judo and in trained with Gene LaBelle. And in a lot of his films, most of his films, he gets to do at least one. In this film, uh, he does a few, he, including On the Boat. And when, the reason yeah. why it's so believable is, for example, in old kung fu movies when they do it, it'd be like the guy grabs him, hi yeah, and throws him, and then it's like opera style and he flies through the air. No, with, <laughs> with Chuck Norris, you get to see him actually do it. And it's also not the stuntman jumping into it. It's and the thing is, they they almost all look beautiful. And even the ones that where the guy doesn't go directly over the shoulder, you can tell yep. you can tell they're doing it for reals because oh, he slightly is angled, but it still looks powerful and real. So Chuck Norris, you know, some people may, for example, criticize his spinning kick or whatever, but uh, or you know his his hands work, you know, kind of more. Occasionally, he does a few jabs in this one, like a double jab, which is great. Uh, yep. But you can't deny that he has maybe the best hip throw in martial arts cinema history. I think you actually might be right. And we do get to see a really good one on that on the boat sequence again. Like it's a sequence that's edited weird. But I I was glad that they cut back to that camera angle for that hip throw because it's it's just so it's really 
Very good. And the one thing he tries in this film that you don't really, maybe we see in other ones, but he, he, if I'm not mistaken, he does it twice. Uh, and I think one of them is on the boat is a rolling thunder kick. Now, mm-hmm. it is definitely not of the style of like Kyokushin Karate where they literally like get themselves off the ground and like whack. Uh, this, it's more of like a crescent roll with a kick like falling into the guy. But it's once again kind of a unique thing to see him do in this film. Uh, and you can appreciate s- sort of what they were doing. Now, <laughs> I'm thinking of like what's our first big action scene in the film when they're at Mako's house and they get attacked by like the SWAT team and the SWAT team that is are the worst shots of all time. I like, know. And that actually, it, it's so bad it takes you out of the action a little bit because yeah, it does. What, like, there's this one sequence where th- there's two parts in particular. One where there's a guy with a machine gun about five feet away from Chuck Norris and he can't hit him. Like all Chuck Norris does is drop to the ground. Then there's another one where the guy is pointing his gun dead on in front of Chuck Norris, a couple feet away. And Chuck Norris like ducks as if like, you know, slipping a punch and like ducks under... The, the shots, which it's, it's just Remo. He becomes Remo Williams. Exactly. There we go. So th- there's definitely, unfortunately, some very hokey moments like that as well. You know, it's the 80s and it's sort of like, OK, but uh, th- but then again, like one of those sequences where they can't hit him, sets him up to jump on the mantle and grab that like machete and toss it at the dude, which is pretty badass. But you're like, oh, he would have been blasted away easily by that point. So, so there are a couple things I wanted to point out in this film. Uh, one is Professor. Mm-hmm. He he catches up to Rosalind in the taxi, mm-hmm. and he just looks at them, and then the taxi drives on. And then the, another car, a uh, Volkswagen bug, almost hits him, and then he picks up the Volkswagen and slams it to the ground. Oh, it does hit him, believe- though, right? Yes, I, I guess it does yeah. hit him, and then he picks it. I'm like, all right, if you had that power, why didn't you stop the taxi? Mm-hmm. Uh Obviously, the tax is heavier. Uh, and then the other thing I wanted to point out, I felt like the sequence, there are a few sequences in Chuck Norris's career where you actually are like, oh, this guy actually is uh, is extremely powerful. Oh, yeah. And one, one obviously he is. We all know this to be true. Uh, one is in uh, uh, Missing in Action, the first one, where he's in the the hotel and there's like someone in his room it, you just really fully believe when he knocks that guy out like there's like a moment of like real just authenticity the other is when his car is being towed in this film and he just goes over and moves the tow truck off of the car and the guy puts his hand on his shoulder and he like yep blocks his hand off there's just something about the way his entire technique it's not just like acting it's like he there's this like temperament that came through of proper technique and and anger that just felt really authentic to me and made me think that that actor's arm hurt the right. next day and you see it in this film even like he has a few shirtless scenes like one where he's working out which with what we think is an original total gym on his yes. badass house on the harbor we should talk about uh where you see he's in such good shape he's always in good shape but he's like that lean fighter shape in this and you see how strong he is and the funny yeah. part is you see like the weights he has around there and they're all kind of lighter but that's probably the style of weightlifting that he really did before the late 80s where he bulked yep. up a little bit you know very functional athletic training and uh 
you nailed it with, you know, the power and stuff. And here's the deal. Chuck Norris was a multi-time world karate champion. And now I think the problem is people associate that era of karate with this era of karate. No, it was a lot different back then. Like point karate, yeah, there was a ton of rules and it was the one point. But depending where you were, like in the country, sometimes it was like full contact, you know, full contact point karate pretty much because there was no padding. You were supposed to pull, but it all depended where you're competing. I mean, you've heard interviews with Bill Superfoot Wallace where he talks about the same thing. And so keep in mind, Chuck Norris was a multi-time world champion. Also, a lot of guys from that era, whether it's Benny the Jet, who would have been much younger, but Bill Superfoot Wallace, Joe Lewis, uh, these guys, you know, they would all become established kickboxing champions, full contact kickboxing champions, uh, PKA, WKA, you know, even Muay Thai, etc. They all speak very highly of Chuck Norris and his abilities. And when you think about it, by the time the PKA and kickboxing was introduced, Chuck Norris was already uh, in his 30s and already well-established as a martial arts champion, had already done, uh, I mean, had started to work in movies at this point. If we're talking about technically the first kickboxing in America was like 1970, but PKA picked up, uh, and that only lasted a couple years, but that original kickboxing in America had low kicks and stuff. Uh, but then it just didn't work out. Then when they rebranded it in 1975 as the PKA introduced full contact karate rules, Chuck Norris would have, uh, so 1975, Chuck Norris was already 35 years old. He had nothing left to prove. He'd already done the Bruce Lee film. You know, he's already starting to establish himself as a martial arts star. Shortly after that, he started making his own movies. So I would have always loved to have seen him compete and see how he would have done. But everyone speaks so highly of Chuck Norris, Benny the Jet included. And you, you can't deny that he was a phenomenal athlete. And like you said, in this film, you get to see the power in some of his kicks. Like, yeah. say what you will about the, the spinning reverse crescent, but his spinning back kick in a lot of his movies, especially when oh. it's shown in slow motion, you see how powerful that is. He throws one in this film on Professor Tanaka. And I was going to say, what the, is he... That's the kick that finally like pisses off the professor uh, where he's like, oh, okay, that actually hurt me. And you could see how powerful Chuck Norris's <laughs> kick was, his side kicks, even his roundhouse kicks. He does that great slow motion where it's like a roundhouse kick to the head, rechambers the same kick, and then kicks the guy in the chest, which is a great like little move that I would do. Uh, so it's a great display of Chuck Norris. And keep in mind, this film, he's already 41 years old. Well, and you know, it's great. It- What's great with him as well, it's not just the kicks. I mean, we always we always know his kicks are great, but his punches, yeah, his technique is so good. Like I, I obviously like you know, we, we train with Peter Sugarfoot Cunningham who's who really hones in on our technique. And, and who one used of to train we- Chuck Norris in the eighties. Yeah. And what, one of my great weaknesses is the hook. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I watch a lot of videos on people like talking about, oh, do this for the hook, do that for the hook. When I'm not able to go see PD on a regular basis or Sensei Cunningham on a regular basis. Uh, and it's funny. Everyone just has a slightly different technique. Your elbows down, elbows this way. And it's like, so I just listen to PD. But when when I want to watch video on how to throw a proper hook, I just will watch Chuck Norris because he throws a great hook. Yeah, he like you get to see him work the heavy bag in his little home gym at one point where he's very yes. frustrated. And so the one thing is like, yeah, you know, his opposite hand may be down a little bit, but uh, which, you know, people love to be critical, right? But once again, I, I was rewatching it yesterday. I was even saying, well, you know, some boxers even throw like that. It just depends on your style. And you see yeah. that he has legitimate power. He has le- amazing uh you know, neuromuscular coordination because, you know, he's utilizing the right uh, body parts. He's twisting into the punches. You see that power. You see him breathing. Uh, you see his physicality. That's why, like, Chuck Norris is the real deal. And the interesting part is 
I feel like maybe, I know as joking as this is, some of the wardrobe he wore in some of his films limited him from being able to truly display his kicks. Because remember, it wasn't yeah. short that long after this, there's that training footage of him in the 80s with Jean-Claude Van Damme, where oh, he's yeah. holding the backs. And you see Chuck Norris in one of the deepest splits, like I've ever, like Van Damme style split. And I'm like, holy, yeah. God, I would have never guessed that simply based off of the way he usually kicks on screen. But and it, yeah. In the movies, he's wearing jeans. In that training session, he's wearing like those Adidas, like red, f- old style, right. thick pants that you can. Which he wears in this film too. What looks like American kickboxing yeah. pants. Yes, yes, uh, but yeah, it's, it's like his flexibility is actually kind of surprising. Now, I know, I know, sometimes people give him flack for for not having like a complete martial arts film. Like sometimes people on Twitter will be like, Oh, I, I'm not like Chuck Norris hasn't done any great films. And then people will respond. Well, what about this, this, and this? And it's like, it is because he was coming to film choreography much later in life. He actually was like, you know, Korean, you served in Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, uh, uh, not the Korean he war, he, not Korean war, but yeah. he was stationed in Korea. Yes. Yeah. He, uh, he, uh, obviously, uh, did re- actual fighting. So to come to film choreography so much later in life, uh, it, it can be very complicated, a, a real shift. We see that in a lot of action films where real fighters sometimes just don't translate at all. Of course, then you have Benny the Jet who can, you know, deliver, you know, one of the greatest fight sequences of, uh, of all time twice on film. Uh, so it just it's it's it speaks a lot to him to be able to stay believable, stay authentic, but also take on some of the some of film choreography. And, and he broke ground for other films. He helped he helped bring martial arts to to a wide cinema audience. And then after that, he he turned to television and he and he brought cinema uh, martial arts into our homes in a way that uh, I think, you know, Kung Fu, the TV show delivered theory of martial arts, but Chuck Norris delivered actuality of martial arts through Walker, Texas Ranger. And also the, the storylines that, and the, like the way the Bushido that we, yes. we talk about his own version, episodes. his own interpretation of Bushido. And a lot of that has to yes. do with his Christian faith. Uh, and I think they can be interchangeable because, you know, he, it's him trying to be the best person he can help society, et cetera, et cetera. So I think you make some excellent points, but you know what? We're almost at our hour. So let's wrap this up. Final closing thoughts on an eye for an eye. I would say that I did get to see this, uh, rented it from a video store in a grocery store. Uh, nice. Uh, years, years ago, like high school age. And this film influenced what I thought I could do uh, from a perspective of making uh movies on the weekends with my friends with my video camera. Uh, and I think it, we still could, my man. So throwing it out there. Let's not let people forget Gavin majored in creative writing at Long Beach. My undergrad was in film production. We're down. If anybody wants to be like, hey, Gavin, AJ, write us a movie. Let's make a movie together. Let's do it. Done. Done. We'll work for a million dollars. Not that much to ask, but sorry, not to cut you off. Keep going. (laughs) No, 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 no. But yeah, I I like this thought that you're taking. Uh, But no, seriously, it's like. This was an attainable film for a young, aspiring filmmaker who loved action. It, you can see it broken. You can see it, uh, how the film breaks down and you can sort of uh, grasp its uh, grasp at it. It's sort of like uh, when I when I was you know studying creative writing and, and film a little bit at Cal State Long Beach, I would uh, 
I would sometimes get overwhelmed by watching Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. So what I did is I would go back and watch the early Hitchcocks, like the first, The Man Who Knew Too Much, or The Lady Vanishes, or Strangers on the Train. I would see how he would start to set up up shots and storyline. And then I would watch his later films and see how it would get uh, much more, how he would become more subtle. And I would do the same with uh, Kurosawa, watching Seven Samurai, Amazing, inspiring, overwhelming. Go back and watch his early judo films. Okay, now I see how he how his his progress. So this an eye for an eye is one of those films that I watched as as uh, a late teen uh, on video and was able to break down the film. So when you brought up watching this film, I was really excited because I hadn't seen it in probably twenty years, and to find it on Tubi, it was it was uh, it was perfect for me. Yeah. So there we go. Uh, real quick, we still have to do the language corner. We forgot last episode. Uh, but anyways, because it's kind of, I guess, sort of Chinese themed with uh, the importing of drugs from, uh, I think, Hong Kong and stuff. And then obviously Mako being Cantonese. Uh, I thought mm. uh, a good word off. the. It's so funny. Just like when you asked me Taoism the other day and I randomly knew it. I was like, I try to only pick stuff I actually know how to say. Right. And I was like, oh, so what, what's a good Chinese word for this? Okay, I was like, all right, revenge. And I was like, do I know how to say revenge? And yes, I do, because as a Kung Fu movie nerd, I was constantly asking my teacher how to teach me to say stuff. She's like, why do you want to know how to say that? I'm like, just tell me. <laughs> so anyways, uh, revenge is bao chou. Bao chou. Yep, so first, uh, sorry, the fourth tone, bao. Bao. Yeah, and then chou, rising tone. Chou. Yeah, so... Uh, Bao chou. Yeah, just like, I mean, bao biao is bodyguard, so it's that that bao, uh, bao, bao uh, word uh, bao in there. But uh, yeah, so there you go. Bao chou. Bao chou. Bao yeah, chou. The C-H sound for the pinion. Uh, so chou. Chou. Bao there you, chou. There you go. All righty. Revenge. Uh, any final closing thoughts? Uh Always fun to, to connect with you on, on Saturdays and talk about the stuff that we love to talk about and go down some rabbit holes because we went yeah. down some rabbit holes. <laughs> I'll today. definitely put that one. in the description. I'm like, be prepared for some tangents, my friends. Uh, yeah. But wouldn't have had it any other way. So, yeah, we'll be back next week to record again uh, in, in a few weeks. Once again, L.A. Comic Con. And thank you for all of our followers on our new social media page. And when it comes to the podcast, please remember to subscribe wherever you listen. Download share with your friends, share the new podcast page. So we're officially at a hundred listeners. Our most recent episode also did very uh, well in terms of uh, our listens within the first week, Uh, like kind of almost like a 20% more than usual. Uh, So, you know, we're really trying to, once again, we're going to keep doing this podcast, but we'd love to make it something that, you know, we could really do. uh, And, interact more with our listeners and build up the audience ship because you know we love to entertain uh so yeah remember spread the word tell your friends about us and on that note uh this has been an awesome episode so thank you my friend thank you very much all righty i'll see you next week sounds good peace